0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Well, welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a podcast about ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news and top resources. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Noble, who serves as an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, and we talk about his most recent book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Dr. Noble also serves as the co-founder and editor-in-chief at Christ and Pop Culture and serves as an advisor at the AND Campaign. He has written for The Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. He's also the author of an upcoming work out later this year entitled You Are Not Your Own belonging to God in an inhuman world. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Noble, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write Disruptive Witness speaking truth in a distracted age?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I, at the time I was um, thinking through this, I was getting a PhD at Baylor University in in English, and I had actually Charles Taylor's um, massive tome a secular age for part of my dissertation research and so i used it quite extensively in my dissertation and one of the neat things about writing a dissertation is that you the some of the best research sticks with you and you can kind of reuse it and you find uses for it and applications elsewhere in life and when it what ended up happening was um around that time that i was writing the dissertation i started thinking about um, a project, an evangelical project that I have long admired, and that's uh, Francis Schaefer and his Labrie uh, movement. And if you're not familiar and, or listeners aren't familiar, sort of the model of Labrie in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was that uh, Schaeffer gets a house, in Switzerland and basically he opens it up to people who are seekers, to, to hippies, to um, people of different religious faiths, uh, um, lapsed Christians, atheists, all kinds of people who were hungry to have questions answered. And I've always loved that idea. And so at that time, I posed the question to myself, what would, could I do that? Could I like outside my house, could I just start a Labrie? And the conclusion I kind of came to, tentatively, my gut reaction was, I don't think it would work today. And to figure out why that was my intuition, uh, Charles Taylor uh, was part of this answer. Um, His framing, his understanding of what secularism is and how it shapes us. Helped explain, I think, why I had that answer. And the other half was the growth of the rapid, insane growth of technology and the way it forms us and the way our and the way we think. So, you know, after I sort of had that hypothetical question and explored it myself, I thought, you know, this this would be interesting to to develop into a book. And so I did. Yeah, to dig in a little bit on that, those two trends, the, the kind mm-hmm.
1: of rapid rise of uh, immediately gratifying activities such as social media and technology along with the growth of secularism. Can you expand on those two trends and kind of how you're seeing those playing out in our society today and also how they interact with one another?
0: So I would say that both of them have the same effect upon us and that is it's a buffering effect. Both of them shield us, buffer us, protect us, give us a distance from Uh, The kind of introspection, the kind of contemplation, the kind of honest vision that we need in order to ask life's big questions, to consider what our lives are for, who we are, what it means to be good, um, the nature of our sin nature, (laughs) our need for redemption, these sorts of things. They both, and they buffer them in in different ways. So in the case of secularism, as Taylor describes it, it's not primarily a force of atheism that is challenging Christianity and saying um, Christianity is false and so everyone ought to abandon it. Rather, the way he understands secularism, it's a process by which everything sort of becomes flattened, where all belief systems are possible, but... Um, they're only one of many belief systems, and that's the that's what he 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 shows in his 800 page book what happens to Christianity. It moves from a, uh, a medieval context where everyone in Europe was essentially a Christian, and it was difficult to imagine being otherwise, to where we are today, where it's to where every Christian is aware that they don't have to be a Christian in America. Right? I grew up in the church, and I've always known. Um, people of other faiths and no faith at all. And I've always known those are options for me. I might not have thought they're true, but I knew there were options. And so my faith is always contested. And I think one result of that is that you can feel, you can get to the place where you feel like, I'm not sure that there are real fundamental answers out there. And maybe the best we can all do is find what seems to be true and then just follow it. And so that kind of protects us, uh, from, I think, really evaluating our belief systems and, and incoherence in our own belief systems, because you can get to a place where you're like, you know what? I, I could spend the rest of my life investigating all these religions and all these philosophies. And, you know, I just need to live my life, you know? And so if, if I feel like I'm being a good person and, uh, I'm doing good things, I think that's, I think that's what really matters. And then technology, particularly of distraction but also productivity, which is related, right? You're constantly being asked to do more and more efficiently. Uh, and then when you're not doing those things, well, you're even asked to do your entertainment efficiently. Um, you know, binge watch, you know, uh, do more and more. Binge watch while you're playing on your phone, for example. Um, and that has the effect of, of making it easier for us to not look at ourselves and recognize our need for a, for a redeemer. Yeah. I guess to dig in a
1: little bit there on uh, Taylor's thought about the the distracted or buffered self. How do you see that playing out in our individual lives in terms of how we engage with one another and kind of – I like that idea you were talking about with everything is efficient. You see that in Jacques Ellul's thought about kind of the drive of technology is the drive towards efficiency of everything. What does he
0: mean specifically about this kind of idea of the buffered self? So the buffered self is a difficult concept to understand. Um, The best way to understand it is to think back to the the contrast, which is the the porous self. So uh, Taylor describes pre-modern people, at least in the West, as conceiving of themselves as porous selves. And by that he means that they understood their presence in the world to be open to and vulnerable to influenced by spiritual forces. So, for example, you could be enter into a a cathedral. And if that's a a sacred space, there's something sacred that can happen to you. Um, Whether you elect to have that happen or not, Uh, if you go to certain places in the woods, those are dangerous spiritual places, you know, relics, for example, if they touch you, they can do things to you, even if you didn't ask them to. Um, so that's the idea of the porous self, and the buffered self is a self that is increasingly living in their their mind, their consciousness, and um, more what he calls excarnated, and so they're less embodied. So that, let's say, I think probably the most poignant example for Christians would be the Lord's Supper. Um, and as we approach it, um, is this to to what extent do we see the Lord's Supper merely as something that is um, a mental exercise? It only happens in my mind. It, it 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 the whole thing. I could just close my eyes and and imagine the Lord's Supper in my mind, and it would have the same power, the same usefulness as actually taking the Lord's Supper. Or does taking the bread and the sorry for being Presbyterian, wine, and, uh, you know, d- d- taking those elements, does that have an effect on you? It does, does Christ actually minister to you through those elements? You know, so I would say that, you know, uh, a, a true understanding of ourselves as, as porous would, would recognize that, n- no, Christ can work through those things. Whereas a buffered self would be like, well, if I choose to think about that, then it's happening. If I don't choose to think about it, Mm, you know, it's not happening. Would you tie the concept of the buffered self to
1: kind of the rise of expressive individualism in our culture? Are those two things synonymous or are they somehow related?
0: So the relationship is this, that with the buffered self, what is most important is that the individual has the power to elect, to choose, to have certain things affect them. And they're protected, so things become optional, and that is also a defining characteristic of expressive individualism. the The distinction I would make is that for Taylor, uh, the buffer itself primarily has to do with the the spiritual uh, realm or the lack, the, you know, thereof in the modern world or the felt lack thereof. Whereas expressive individualism is, you know, sort of all encompassing. It's not just the spiritual things; it's it's everything. There's sort of a buffer around all of us so, so, so that um, I can elect to have a certain identity, I can elect to have a certain preference, I can elect to look a certain way. All of these things are options available to me and I myself, my being is something disengaged and above those things that chooses to reach out and grab them as a consumer might. So that's the connection I think. So I guess to bring that home to for Christians and for
1: listeners here, how does that then play out specifically in our culture today in terms of the church's gospel witness and even the task of apologetics today? How do these kind of ideas overlap
0: and intersect with one another? So the argument I make in the book uh, is that it is dangerous for us to assume that sort of the traditional or the the common ways that we think about doing apologetics are – going to be received the same way that we communicate them so for example if because of the rise of secularism most people see christianity as just one of many available lifestyles uh, options and because of the rise of technology they have a tendency to think very thinly and superficially about deep things because they're constantly being distracted their attention is worn down and we approach them in a conversation, and let's say we share the gospel. And when we speak those words, we believe that we are communicating something that um, is life changing, but not in the way that you know getting better insurance is life changing, but genuinely life changing, transforming, um, because it's not just choosing a better version of life; it's actually revealing the way we are we ought to be before God. And so we mean those, when we talk about God, when we talk about Christ and his sacrifice, that's what we envision. But if our listener is someone living in this very secular and distracted age, I think it's very likely that they will hear those words as somebody saying, well, the equivalent of, uh, hey, have you tried this latest uh, fitness uh, program? It's, you know, it's, I've lost a lot of weight with it, It's really changed my life. Uh, I, I think it would be a good fit for you. Um, and, and, and they hear Christianity as an option like weight loss or a fitness program or a political party or something like this. So that means, in my opinion, what it means is that we have to have a witness that is disruptive in some sense, and that could take lots of different forms, but the goal of it is to encourage, to invite people to consider the magnitude, the sovereignty, the power, the solemnity of the God that we're talking about. And um, that means we need to to be very careful about adopting modern, uh, worldly, commercial uh, uh, platforms Uncritically, because those platforms will tend to be more conducive to sort of superficial conception of Christianity. But that's that's the goal. That's the goal is, is disruption, helping people say slow down and really uh, uh, understand what we're saying. Um, in, it's in its cosmic scope, not as a just just a lifestyle option. To shift gears a little bit, to talk a little
1: bit more about what this disruptive witness looks like for us as individuals and our churches and our communities, what are some kind of practical ways that you think we can go about shifting the way we talk about the gospel or uh, missions or apologetics in this culture that does kind of focus our, we're so much, uh, where we're so distracted by technology and kind of having this scrolling mentality where we just continually are distracting ourselves and entertaining ourselves. It kind of reminds me a little of Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death. Uh, this kind of culture of technology, of always entertaining and everything has to entertain us. How do you think that intersects in terms of practical ways of doing
0: apologetics and, more importantly, doing uh, gospel ministry? So there's low-hanging fruit that we need to start with, and those low-hanging fruits are examining where we have uncritically adopted methods and platforms and mediums from the larger world, especially from the market which, as I said earlier, are probably going to be designed specifically with the assumption that these beliefs are all just lifestyle options. So, for example, when a church tries to advertise in ways that that mimic the way we promote a uh, car dealership or something, then what we're doing unintentionally, and maybe with the best of intentions even, but what we're, what we're doing is, in the mind of the viewer, we're uh, leveling those things so that the uh, the what we're offering with the church, the good life we're offering with the church, is kind of similar to the good life we're offering with the, you know, better laundry detergent, right? So there are things that we do within the church, um, the way we advertise things within the church, the way we talk about things within the church, the way we use social media to uh, promote, Are uh, ministries that um, I think are due for some consideration and asking ourselves, am I encouraging for other people, am am I encouraging them to think of this as merely a lifestyle option? Or am I asking, am I disrupting their assumptions about what it means to be a Christian? So once we get those sort of low-hanging fruit out of the way, um, then I would say you know it it in the book what i do is i break it down to uh, what the church can do, what the individual can do, and what sort of communally we can do. Um, the church, I think we have liturgies in the church that do a fantastic job of, of disrupting our lives, of our modernist lives. Um, and I talk quite a bit about that. But individually, here's what I like to think about. Um, when we when we want to share the gospel, when we want to minister to people, okay, where are we doing this? What kind of environment are you doing this in? I know a lot of restaurants today, if you take someone and you want to have lunch or dinner with someone and have a real conversation, there's a very good chance that there's going to be a television on somewhere um, right behind their head. I know when I take a date night with my wife, like I've got to fight. I don't even care if I like the sport. Like my eyes are, it's like... uh, They just get sucked into a screen because that's what screens do to us we've been conditioned to look at them and so i have a terrible time not looking at whatever is going on behind me well those are the kinds of things that make this work harder and so just thinking practically about where are we having these conversations how What are the lengths of these conversations? And what are you inviting the person to do after the conversation? So, for example, I think there could be a great difference between um, talking to a a good friend who's an unbeliever at a a, a sports bar or a grill or whatever, and uh, for a few minutes and then saying goodbye, and let's say taking a walk with that person with no social, you know, no phones out and asking them explicitly, hey, Would you just think about those things for a little? Just spend some time just thinking about walking and thinking about those things and invite them to be contemplative because they're probably not going to do it on their own because very few of us do. So that's one sort of practical individual example.
1: No, I really love that especially is... We even have devices, not only just screens, but even devices attached to us all the time where it's tracking every single thing we do, our heart rates, our breath, everything. You know, even having like an Apple Watch where it sometimes annoyingly tells you that you're stressed out and you're like, I already know that, um, but thanks for telling me. So you're getting these constant distractions and these notifications. And so I, I really love that idea of taking a walk. Um, without any technology. I know I've encouraged listeners to do that before of leave your devices at home and go for a walk down the street with your family um, in order to not always have to be connected. Um, But sadly, we're growing into an age where we're constantly connected and unable to disconnect in some ways. well, you recently finished a new book that's coming out soon with IVP called You're Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Can you give us a little preview or snapshot of that work and what to expect?
0: So the the basis for this argument is that all societies are built based around some understanding of what it means to be human. And I ask the question, what if our society is based on a false understanding of what it means to be a human being? Because if that were true, what would happen is, we would feel alienated. We would feel like our environment is foreign to us, and we would be constantly stressed, we'd be constantly anxious, frustrated, um, which basically describes, I think, a lot of people in the West today. And the specific uh, understanding, conceptions of the human person that I have in mind here is that uh, I argue that contemporary society, that modernity assumes that we, are our own, and we belong to ourselves. This is a basic fundamental understanding of what it means to be human in the modern world, and we build our, our institutions, our laws, our values, our cultural practices, our entertainment, everything based off of that assumption, consumption, consumerism, everything. But if we're not, if it's true that we are not our own but belong to Christ, then we should expect that our Our world is disordered, that we feel a constant uh, tension, not just that spiritual tension created by the fall um, and and spiritual forces, but a tension between uh, you know an individual who's living in an environment that is fundamentally not built for him or her. And that, and I think that's our condition. so that's that's the exploration is I, I take a look at, okay, well, what what does this mean? How does this work? In what sense uh, does society assume that we are our own and belong to ourselves? How is it true that we are not our own and we don't belong to ourselves? And what do we do about it? How do we move forward? How can that help us? So I'm excited about it. I don't know if it's, you know, you write a book and you don't know what it's going to do or how it's going to do. But
1: Well, just based on that, I know I'm very excited to get my hands on a copy. And does it come out this October? Is that right? Yes, October something, 12th maybe. Well, we'll make sure to link to... Uh, to the publisher's website so that people can see the pre-order links and learn a little bit more about the book in the show notes. But the last question I always ask uh, guests on the podcast is kind of takeaways. If there are one or two books maybe that you would recommend listeners to pick up outside of your own, obviously, we want to make sure we promote those. Um, But one or two books that you would recommend listeners to pick up if they're kind of intrigued by the conversation, want to dig a little bit deeper, where would you point them to?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think uh, Jamie Smith's "How Not to Be Secular is still very useful for for anyone who doesn't have the time or the patience for an eight hundred page book uh, written by a, a great philosopher like Charles Taylor who could condense his words but but he tends not to um, I think it's a it's a very good way of 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 reading that text. I would also say that uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death is a very powerful, very helpful text to understanding the cultural forces of technology and how it's shaping us and our imaginations. Uh, I would also say for readers who maybe have a little more time, a little more advanced, uh, Jacques Ellul's uh, Technological Society is amazing. And maybe finally... Uh, Joseph Pieper's uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which doesn't f- directly address any of these questions, but it actually sort of um, provides, I-, I think, an alternative, um, which is leisure, a Christian conception of leisure that that is very countercultural and powerful. So those are all
1: good books. Yeah, they really are, especially Jacques Ellul. He's uh, become a definitely a dialogue partner on a lot of things. I'm really enjoying his work. And so all of those books we'll make sure to link to in the show notes for listeners to be able to grab a copy of. Well, Dr. Noble, I just want to say thank you, one, for writing the book, uh, for the way that you go about a lot of these issues. I just really appreciate the tone and the tenor and the method that you go about these things, helping us to press in and think a little bit deeper about not only our faith, but a lot of the cultural forces around us. So thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Noble and learn more about his work, including the recommended resources at the end of the show in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.